Well, if you would like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, we are uh, continuing our series in this Gospel of John. And uh, as you'll see from the title slide, we have, uh, we have called this series Life, quite simply, um, because in Him is eternal life, in Jesus Christ. And uh, you'll notice that, if it comes up, uh, that we have uh, themed even our little logo. How interesting is this? on a, a certain and unnamed, uh, what do you call it, social network. Don't tell anyone. Um, purely to communicate, to help communicate to us what we're thinking about in John chapter 1, 1 to 18, that God has self-revealed himself, therefore God, that, that, therefore you can truly know God. Knowing God is within your grasp because God has made himself known. It's a sweet and a great thought uh, as we come to the gospel of John again tonight. So we're going to read from John chapter 2 through to just about the end. And let's pray and ask God's help as we study his word. Lord, thank you indeed for your word, uh, that it it sheds light on who you are, it illumines you, reveals you, yourself to us. And we pray that tonight, that as we look to you, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that we would know you, that we would understand who you are and what you seek to reveal to us about yourself and based on the glory you reveal to us that we may believe and have life in your name. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 2, reading from verse 1 then. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the wine, the the water that hadn't been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? 
his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Amen. This is God's word. Those of you who think I'm dodging verses 23 uh, and 24, we're going to handle that next time round because I think it fits wonderfully well with, uh, to tee us up for what's happening with Nicodemus. There you go. My disclaimer. Now, do you remember, uh, as we look through this Gospel of John, we, we want to be looking at it in a certain way and asking certain questions. Where do we find, if you remember, where do we find John's interpretative key for understanding this book of John? It's in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Turn over there with me to the very end, almost the end. to remind ourselves of these things. John 20, verse 30 and 31 read, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now go back, John chapter 1 this time. John chapter 1, and in particular, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, whenever we come to any passage in John, uh, whether you're new to the Bible, or whether you know the Bible well, and, and, and know this gospel well, having read it through a few times, we want to be asking the questions of every passage in relation to what John 1.14 says. How does this passage reveal his glory? And then we want to be asking a further two questions. How does this passage reveal to us that Jesus is the Christ, the promised king, uh, the, the king promised from the Old Testament? And how does, how does this passage declare to us that Jesus Christ is the son of God? And these are the things that we're going to camp on. Uh, tonight, really. These are the things that we're looking to, to, to figure out together. But John chapter 1 has been interesting, hasn't it? If you think back to uh, a few weeks ago in John 1, 1 to 18, you have John, uh, John the writer of this gospel, saying, uh, we have seen his glory. I have seen him. And then Andy uh, preaching to us, uh, telling us last week that uh, that John the Baptist is there telling us, look, everybody else, see him, see him. And then you had Jesus himself at the, towards the end just saying to some of these other disciples, come and see. Well, what are we supposed to be seeing? Because there's three people saying, see or look at, at Jesus. What are we supposed to see? Well, we see his glory. We see these, his glory revealed in these signs. And what we see in chapter 2. And what I want to do to, for us tonight and even our limited time in dealing with 
a bigger text like this is, is to try and boil this down into two main points, okay? Uh, and let me show you where we're going. First of all, I want to show you from verses 1 to 11 how Jesus is the new and better bridegroom. Okay, Jesus is the new and better bridegroom. And then to show you from verses 12 through to 22 that Jesus is the new and better temple. Jesus is the new and better temple. Well, weddings, delightful, aren't they? I've had the privilege of, of, of doing a number. Uh, nothing so dramatic as what happens he, uh, here. We had uh, my most recent wedding uh, involved a bird in the, the, the main hall where the wedding was taking place and uh, sadly uh, a bride who was absolutely petrified of our feathered friends. Uh, so uh, that made for uh, a very interesting set of uh, vows. Um, we got there in the end, shall we say. Uh, but yeah, this, this wedding uh, at Cana in Galilee, well, w w this is a howler. This is a howler of an error here. Let's face it. I mean, you can imagine how embarrassing it must be for, to invite people, say, to your wedding, only to run out of food or wine. I mean, that would really put a downer on a day which is meant to be known as what? The best day of your life. Well, this is, it, it would not be the best day of your life if something like that happened. It would be remembered for this major howler. And this is exactly what's happening at this wedding in Cana. The best day of this happy couple's life uh, is, uh, was about to really just unravel in front of them because the wine was running out. That's what we see in verses 1 and, in verse, uh, verses one and 2 uh, and 3, of course. Now, would you believe it? Let me give you a bit of background to this. Weddings back then were pretty spectacular. Uh, we think we do well with our weddings nowadays, you know, with wedding planners. And, you know, it's a massive logistical operation to make this one day happen. And statistics, uh, recent statistics show that we'll even spend up to 22 grand. Would you believe it? On uh, this best day of our life. Well, this... For, for people in these days and for these friends on this occasion back in Canaan, Galilee, well, this was a spectacular social gathering. The, the, the bride and groom would be married on the Wednesday, having been paraded around their town, um, dressed up with, with crowns and so on, even addressed as king and queen. They would get married in the evening, and you think that's convenient, buffet, send the guests home, not too expensive, that wedding. But these weddings celebrations went on for a week. You know, the, the guests would come back the next again day and you'd have open house for a week. Happy honeymoon. Now, but here's the thing. In a shame culture like this, which it was, to fail to provide food and drink for your guests for the duration of the celebration was absolutely disastrous. This kind of error was so socially outrageous that it was actually written into some of their Jewish religious law that failure to provide for a week of wedding festivities could actually land you up in court. Well, that's a big problem. So this is a major howler on, uh, on somebody's part. But the question is, who is responsible for this major faux pas on this occasion? 
Well, John chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, have a look down with me, tell us that the groom was ultimately responsible for providing the wine for his wedding. Read it with me. When the master of the banquet, in other words, just a, an MC, uh, tasted the water that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, so it's not his responsibility. Then he called the bridegroom aside. Now you see who's really in charge of the wine and said, everyone who uh, brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Well, no, he didn't, actually. The bridegroom is addressed by the MC here because it was the done thing for the bridegroom to make provision for the celebrations. But the truth of verses 7 and 8 hit us. We know exactly what's happened. Jesus Christ, the one claiming to be God in the flesh, has just transformed gallons and gallons of water into wine, fine wine. And in doing so, what has Jesus done? And remember our initial questions, how does this sign, miraculous sign, show forth the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full, in grace, full of grace and truth? Well, I would suggest that he saved the day. He has averted disaster, and as a result, instead of, amazingly in this passage, instead of shame and disgrace being heaped on this bridegroom, this bridegroom receives praise. All because of what Jesus has done for him. People are saying, well, you know, the MC saying, this is the, this is the best wine. I'm sure people were saying, this is the best party I have ever been at. It's amazing to see in this passage that the bridegroom here, despite his major faux pas, is being credited with Jesus' work. You see what's happened? Jesus has quietly taken the place of the bridegroom at the wedding and made up for his shortcoming. He covers over the deficiencies of this unnamed bridegroom. What's John trying to tell us in this? Well, I think he's teeing us up for what he will report to us in John 3. John often does this in his gospel. He, he throws in a little teaser a little, a little snippet of information that will be developed and elaborated on at a later stage. And I think he's pointing us to what John the Baptist will say towards the end of John chapter 3. And it's this, that Jesus is the true and better bridegroom. The true, the new and better bridegroom. Look over the page at John 3 in verse 28. Here's John the Baptist speaking again. We've already heard from him in chapter 1. He comes again. And he says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. Verse 29. The bride belongs to the what? The bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom. So he is, John's saying he's the bride. John's saying he's the friend who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens for him. So the bridegroom's Jesus here. And is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. He says, the joy is mine, 
and it is now complete. It is quite clear for us here that John the Baptist sees Jesus as the Christ, the promised king, who will lovingly provide for his bride, for his people, as a bridegroom. And what he's doing here is he, he is picking up this motif, this theme from the Old Testament where God characterizes himself in order to communicate himself better to his people with this metaphor of himself as a bridegroom. In Isaiah 62 verse 5, we read that as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so, so God, your God, will rejoice over you. Moving on to verse 8 of the same chapter, listen to this. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled, but those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. He's the bridegroom providing new wine. You see that? And all of this really serves to open your eyes to the splendor of that which we, the, 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 the passage with which we opened up our service with, pointing us forward to the new heaven and the new earth, new creation. John beholds us, uh, encourages us in the book of Revelation to behold this Lamb of God who is the bridegroom doing something absolutely exquisite here. Because here in, in Revelation uh, in 21, you've got this, this imagery again of another wedding and another feast and a perfect provision. And the interesting thing is in here, you've got a bridegroom again and you've got a bride. But here you see all tradition is going completely out of the window on this occasion. Who is it that usually helps a bride in, today, in, in this day and age to get ready for the wedding ceremony? It tends to be the bride's mother or the bridesmaids. Where's the husband? Where's the groom? Well, who cares? You know, as long as he's at the wedding on time, you know, doesn't really make much difference. But here on this occasion, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is preparing his bride, beautifying his church, the people of God for this wedding feast where they will spend eternity forever in joyous celebration, wine ever flowing. It is a wonderful, wonderful picture of Christ the King, the Son of God, beautifying his bride, purifying her and preparing her for that eternal life with him. It's not just this bridegroom in John 2, which the imagery which, which throws meaning into this passage for us. There's the wine, of course. I mean, this new wine he provides is quite simply another messianic sign, we call it. It's a, a, an Old Testament motif realized here in the life of Jesus, which points us forward to a greater reality that can be ours when we put our faith and our trust in him. Uh, and it's a glorious picture that we have in, in John chapter 2, isn't it? Of this, this wine. I mean, in view of our emptiness, in view of the emptiness of this, this bridegroom committing this howler, Jesus comes offering wine in abundance. It's wine that has no danger in running out. The amount that Jesus is supplying here 
is essentially enough in today's age for approximately a thousand bottles. Well, that's extravagant. You know, is it so that everybody can just get... Uh, I'm sorry, but bluttered is the first word that is coming to mind. Uh, apologies for that. <laughs> drunk is the better word, Liam. Drunk. Um, you know... <laughs> I mean, what's the point here? Is Jesus just saying, well, let's everybody get drunk? No. He's saying, look at the abundance of my provision. You ran out, bridegroom. I'm the new and better bridegroom. My provision never runs out. Never. It speaks of the, sim the symbolism of the lavish provision of the new king and the new kingdom. What's more, he provides wine that we see as qualitatively Better. That's what the, the, the master of ceremonies declares, isn't it? He says in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the, drunk, the, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Don't you just love the fact even that the validation of this miracle and the evaluation of the quality of this wine comes objectively from a man who is completely ignorant of what has taken place. It's incredible. I wonder if we had actually told him, do you know what Jesus miraculously provided this? What do you think his response would be? Do you think it would have been, wow, praise God? Not necessarily. Maybe like many others, maybe like us sometimes, we would doubt. How common is the expression in our culture? No way. Many don't feel at ease with miracles like this, do we? You know, if there really is a God of supernatural power who controls the processes of this world that he claims to have made, most of us actually tend to feel like we don't want to get too close to a God like that. We, un we feel almost uneasy at the m these miracles because they just break into our neat world of laws and systems and everything else that we think we control, think we control. So, we have a tendency towards unbelief. But the truth is, though, and the witnesses confirm it in this occasion, the transformation of water into wine happened because Jesus is the one who, as C.S. Lewis calls, the, the transcendental interferer. Great, isn't it? I just love saying that, transcendental interferer who will not keep out of the world and who will challenge us in what we believe. It's incredible. At the start of the story, they have water. By the end of the story, they have wine. It's new wine, but it is of vintage quality. It's like aged wine. Listen, friends, I think the point of all of this of seeing Jesus as the new and better bridegroom who makes up for all of our deficiencies, that as the, the bringer of the new wine of the kingdom, a symbol of joy when we put our faith and trust in him, I think we're supposed to see in this that there is life. There is life for everyone who recognizes their emptiness and our impending disgrace at our shortcomings, our sinfulness, our sinful shortcomings. And the answer is in the gracious provision of the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus himself. 
we're called to believe in his name, to put our hope in him and ask him to accept us, even though we've blown it so many times, and we've to ask him to give us credit, to give us credit for what Jesus has done in our place. It's, it's an incredible picture. And we need to realize, of course, that before we can celebrate the fact that grace makes eternal life possible for us by believing in his name, that we have to accept the impossibility of inheriting it on our own. We don't like the thought of our shortcomings. Our, our culture tends to, to divert us away from thinking about ourselves as shortcomings. You know, just focus, focus on the positive. It might affect your self-esteem. Well, let's not think about self-esteem. Let's think about reality. And let's see what God has to say about the situation. Because the plain truth of the fact is, as we look upon ourselves, we might actually feel pretty downbeat. I think when you come face to face with the reality of your sinfulness, you can be downcast. But the answer to that downcastness is not to put your faith and hope in your better efforts. The answer is to seek forgiveness from the one who offers it freely and the one who exchanges all of your shortcomings for his perfections and grants you the grace to believe. Did you know that we have no righteousness that does not belong to Christ? No power that is not given by Christ? No hope that doesn't depend on Christ? All of it achieved for us by Christ? Who is, even as he says in this passage, in what is really a rebuke, where he's distancing himself from his mother, from his earthly relations, to stress the importance of pursuing the Father's will for his life, he refers to the hour of his death. The hour. My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come, he says. What is that hour? Again, it's one of these little things that John throws in, and he'll keep bringing it up throughout the course of it. And just before the cross, he will say, now the hour has come. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. And he walks on to die on the cross for our sin as our substitute to take away our sins. That, that's how he is the new and better bridegroom making up for all of our shortcomings. The question is, have you put your faith and trust in him instead of putting your faith and trust in yourself or in anything else apart from him all of this is possible you know because of what we learn in this second section in John chapter 2 that Jesus is the new and better temple now what is the temple it needs a, a little bit of explanation of course um, the temple uh, in the Old Testament is quite simply the place where where God and man meet it's the place where man may come and through the offering of sacrifice in this Old Testament system can be reconciled to God and have sins forgiven. It is the place where people would come with humble and contrite hearts, repenting of sin, knowing that God will accept those believers because of the bloody sacrifice of a lamb that died in their place, essentially. And of course, we read that this is nearing Passover time. And Passover time was the time when the Jews celebrated the fact that 
that in their past, when they were enslaved in Egypt and horrendously oppressed at that time, that God rescued them, that God brought real severe judgment on their enemy, Egypt, and made a wonderful way of salvation, a way for them to escape, to redeem them so that he could form them to be his people. But, and, and, and having done that, one of the, the main things that God does, having delivered his law and explaining to his people, here is how I want you to live, he instructs them on the building of this, this facility, this tent. And he dwells in that tent. People come offer sacrifices that are as a right way to approach God. And then as we go on, we have temples built. This is the second temple. And we have this continuing vision of this, uh, this temple as being the place where God and man meet. And this, of course, is Passover time. But when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, what, what does he find? Uh, you know, what does he find? He finds that a place that was purposed and intended for worship was essentially being used for profit and convenience. A place where prayer and praise should have been heard was no doubt raucous with the bartering of men and the bleating of sheep. And a place which, in which there was space made for those who weren't Jews. In other words, those from the nations, the Gentiles, as the Bible often refers to them, there was space made available for them to come if they wanted to come and worship God. But that space was crowded out with animals and tables instead. Now, as we see in this text, this makes Jesus very angry. Makes very, he, it makes him very angry. He is driving them all out. He is overturning tables. And he's doing this with a whip of cords. But what is Jesus doing in this situation? Because he goes on to have this, this discussion with the Jews. Interestingly, listen, this is an interesting point as well, you know. That there was ample law giving jurisdiction to temple police if Jesus was being a hooligan and simply being a vandal to have him arrested and put out of the city. But interestingly, they don't do that. So for some reason, they're in a sense thinking, this man's behavior merits a little bit of, a little bit of caution, whether they've heard something about what's happened in Cana and news has already come with him, or whether they just see his actions and think, well, this, I'm having recollections here of the prophets of the Old Testament and the judgment that they were bringing. We're not sure. But they, they ask him for a sign. Show us, show us, they say. Prove your authority to do all of this. And Jesus utter these, utters these incredible words. Destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. They, they are just wonderfully confused here. Ha, <laughs> it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And they completely missed the point. They completely missed the point. And we read the explanation in the text. The temple, verse 21, look with me, read it. The temple he had spoken of was his body. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? The temple, this big facility, no longer used, 
His body, that's the new temple, okay? This is to be the new temple. And Jesus is declaring, it's declaring that himself openly by what he says. He's claiming nothing less, now get this, nothing less than the reconstituting of the entire worship of God's people around himself, his person. And of all that he is going to do, he talks about his death and his resurrection from the dead three days later. As if to say, this temple of stone, this facility that we are standing in, will pass into oblivion. Not only because it will be raised to the ground in AD 70, but because it is going to be spiritually obsolete. Jesus' body, offered up in sacrifice and raised up in power, will be the new temple, the new place where God and man meet. And I, I just think, isn't this just what Jesus has already hinted at in John chapter 1, verses 50 and 51? Thank you, Andy Prime, for leaving these for me to deal with. Jesus makes this seemingly odd comment to Nathaniel, if you look back with me, where, where Jesus is saying, you believe because I told you under the fig tree, you should you shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, what is all that about? Well, I think that when Nathaniel, who is described in verse 47 as the true Israelite, hears of angels ascending and descending on something, he would immediately think of Genesis chapter 28, which we read from earlier, Jacob's Ladder that, in a sense, stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. And of course, if you remember back to the reading of that text, when Jacob hears God's promise of blessing, he declares with wonder, this is the house of God. Well, Jesus is declaring himself essentially to be the ladder. He's putting himself in that place. He is the new and better ladder. He's the new and better temple. He, Jesus Christ, is the place, the only place where God and man meet. He is the only way to God. Now that's an interesting thought. Does that, in the way you're living out your life and your hope for your future and your eternal future, does how you're living your life out in the here and now declare to you that I am living in such a way that, that demonstrates that, that quite clearly Jesus is my only way to heaven? Or are you looking to get there by other means? It's a big question. How we get life so wrong in this? You know what we do? We do what David Powlison uh, says, is that we work hard at building our own ladders to heaven, but that is futile. He says, we build 15-foot ladders on a 30-foot wall. And though we could never make it to the top on our own effort, we still try hard. The sad thing is we settle for 15-foot ladders as long as they're higher up the wall than other people's ladders. But that is expressly sad because it demonstrates that we miss the point that 15 foot up the wall, however high you get up there, you're not going to reach the top by your own effort. And in judgment, all of your ladders are going to be taken away from you. You may as well build the ladder with sand. 
here's where the gospel comes in. Jesus declaring himself to be the new and better temple, the place, the house of God, where God and man may meet, comes by his death and resurrection, becomes the true ladder that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus can make it and find that way. Have you, have you put your faith and trust, your hope in Jesus in this respect? Have you made him the focal point of your worship? As he stands there in that temple, having driven everything out, declaring that the body that will be destroyed, which it will be on the cross, later in John's gospel we'll see, where he dies as the sacrificial lamb. Remember what John said? Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the high priest who offers the sacrifice and Jesus himself is the sacrificial lamb. Are you seeking God? Know this, there is only one way to the Father and it's through Jesus Christ. It's through putting your faith and trust in him. And what it requires of you is repentance, a turning away from your sin and a turning towards God in faith and in trust. And here's the thing that we can be confident of if that's where you're at tonight and that's what you want to do tonight. The, the motivation for that repentance isn't just a sorrow over your sin and the disgrace that it brings. Remember the bridegroom in the story? And that's what our sin brings. It brings total disgrace. And the threat of punishment. I miss that. Punishment. But we not only need to have an idea and an understanding of our sorrow for sin, we need to have a fresh grasp and a fresh sense of the mercy of God that is extended to all of us. So that we need not be afraid to come, actually, when you come through the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that in Revelation 21 as well, don't you? Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is the temple. Mixing of metaphors, that's okay. It broadens our understanding of Jesus. That's how you see in John chapter 2 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is how we behold his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And know this, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the outcome of your repentance and the outcome of your faith in him is not some kind of restored status quo. It's not just making you feel better. It's not getting back in your own mind to, to where we were before we sinned. The outcome is new obedience. And I'll be honest with you, it's costly but it's motivated by his grace that is ours every day and fueled by his spirit who lives in us and makes his dwelling in our hearts. And what he offers us is complete transformation. Just as that water was transformed into wine, so your life of sin can be transformed. You can be given newness of life. Ezekiel talks about that. That God takes our heart of stone and transplants for a heart of flesh, a heart that is cold and dead towards God, for a heart that is warm 
and alive toward God with affection and with love. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Pray to him. Call upon his name as Lord. He is the place where God and man meet. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son into this world to reveal your glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Thank you that in this gospel we have seen him as you have revealed himself, revealed him to us. Lord, open our eyes to behold your glory all the more. Give us faith to believe and put our trust in you. I pray that you would take every heart that tonight is, uh, has, has had their eyes open to the truth of the gospel, of what you win for us by your death and your resurrection, a transformed life, a life where you have made up for all of our uh, deficiencies, all of our sinful shortcomings by dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin and giving us your own righteousness. Thank you that it is through you that we can truly know the eternal God and look forward indeed through faith in him to eternal life at the banquet of the lamb that was slain where there is joy forevermore. May we all be granted either the strengthening of faith that we already have or new faith to believe. Lord, let it be so. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.